Welcome to an emergency edition of the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. So this is a twice daily podcast today, uh, I believe is the, what is this, the 10th of August, Tuesday the 10th of August, 2021. We we did one this morning and we're doing one this afternoon because of course the news broke around noon that uh, Andrew Cuomo has resigned the governorship of New York effective uh, in two weeks. The governorship will be taken over by Kathy Hochul, former uh, uh, member of Congress, um, the governor's uh, the 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 governorship of New York is up for election next year. Uh, it was thought that Cuomo would be running for the fourth term, and he is clearly not running for the fourth term. Although you know, you never know because stuff could happen. The state the the uh, an impeachment, by the way, could still happen. Uh, if they wanted to rush it through. And apparently the state Senate is able to pass, oddly, a piece of legislation that would not require his impeachment but could deny him further bites at uh, at state-level office. So in any case, Andrew Cuomo is out. And uh, I, rather than just gloat, we should talk about the larger meaning of this. Uh, because my friend Julian Zelizer at uh, Princeton, um, uh, who is a, a guy I like, but said, you know, this proves that Democrats, you know, unlike Republicans who are so tribal, Democrats will actually take the steps necessary to remove good Democrats from office when they transgress and Republicans don't do that. Uh, anyway, I, I, so that was one reaction uh, which I think is worthy of discussion because I don't really think that comports with the historical record necessarily. But, uh, okay, jump in. Maybe it does. Um, you know, loathe to give these people any ammunition. But I kind of thought that he would he would tough it out. Indeed, his own instincts, as he said in this press conference, were to to hang on for as long as he possibly could and weather the storm, and perhaps the storm would disappear. Um, but maybe one of the deciding factors was the institutional Democratic Party cut off fundraising for him and Andrew Cuomo's small dollar uh, contributions are all but non-existent. He lives and dies on fundraising from party, uh, the party machine, the party apparatus. So, I mean, I don't know what the contributing factors were in his estimation, but as a political entity, he couldn't raise any more money. He also is facing, uh, it's not over for him in terms of the legal uh, threats he's going to have to deal with. So he's got, it's the feds, right, who are investigating the nursing home data business. Um, But they're also looking at, as actually John mentioned this on the podcast this morning, how he, whether or not he was misusing, you know, the state's money and resources to write his memoir. And then obviously the the sexual harassment charges, uh, there's a criminal investigation that's still ongoing with those. So even resigning is not going to give him breathing room for some of the other, all the, the multiple scandals that are being investigated right now. I don't think that they. it's a, a matter of them going after their own, really. I, th- I think something unique happened here in that, and it's not unlike something we had talked about earlier about how um, sort of minority views sort of take over. Um, uh, not that this was an unjust uh, minority view, but Biden was faced with a, a binary choice, right? He, he, was, he had to go on record. He was pressured to either say, uh, yes, 
uh, Andrew Cuomo should step down uh, or no, he shouldn't. And I think he found it right, rightfully impossible to side to go on record um, and sort of go on the wrong side of history again, as it were, and say, uh, no, the, uh, the 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 governor of New York, who has been uh, investigated uh, and and purported to have uh, had all these um, encounters um, during which he forced himself upon women or, or transgressed upon them in various ways. Um, no, he should stay in office. So I think I think that if it weren't for that, um, there would we wouldn't have seen the cascade that that happened after. But I think the cascade that happened after was was inevitable once that happened. And that's all. But I also goes to cert, to to advance the the point made by Julian Salazar. Is that his name? Salazar. Yeah. Salazar. Um, because Joe Biden occupies the Oval Office. Um, in the, if any other figure were in that office, it would be a much more difficult proposition. Indeed, Republicans confronted with Donald Trump at the top of the totem pole would be unable to execute a, ver- a similar uh, maneuver in under s- those same conditions. Well, okay, hold on. But um, I mean, the Eric Steve King Brighton thing is the, the example, governor... right? But the Steve King thing only goes so no. far. Yes, he was ejected from his committees. Eric. Eric Greitens, the governor of Missouri, resigned from his office in 2018. There were two criminal charges facing him. There was an ethics probe facing him. There were reports that he'd had some kind of an S&M relationship with somebody and, and, and was using photos against her. Um, so that he was a Repub- the Republican governor of Missouri resigned three years ago. So the idea that Republicans don't, can't, you know, and that's a Republican state with a Republican Assembly. The idea that you know Republicans don't get forced out of office is simply untrue. Like, but did uh, the party turn on him? Was the party yes. with the spigot yes. cut off him? I don't recall. That. Yes, yes, it was. And he most certainly had a private bi- listen, bankrolling him. A bipartisan committee in the G- in the GOP dominated Missouri House released a report in which the woman Greiden had had an affair with described him calling her derogatory names, grabbing her crotch without consent, and slapping her face. Greitens called the report a political witch hunt full of lies and falsehoods, but never specified which claims he specifically denied. Then weeks later, a second charge was filed, felony tampering with, compu- felony tampering with computer data, and he resigned. So, I mean, that's three years ago, and that was a Republican governor. So I just think the charge that somehow Democrats are purer in their handling of you know of of politicians who are who find themselves in a in a position of disgrace is simply not borne out by by the by the facts. I mean, that, um, there's a lot of defensiveness on the Democratic side, post Clinton, post Al Franken, still about like they you know the Al Franken debacle, like forcing him out over those charges. I think still stings for a lot of Democrats. So there's a kind of rationalization that goes on with like, well, at least it shows that we care about governance and force out the bad guys. When in fact, it's a very mixed uh, mixed bag historically. Yeah, and Al, you know, Al Franken didn't do anything. Al Franken, there was a photograph of Al Franken miming, miming uh, a, you know, a sexual act uh, on a sleeping woman that did not actually take place. Right. And uh, that woman used the photograph against him because I guess he was fulminating about, um, it was fulminating about Brett Kavanaugh. And then there was this whole question about whether or not uh, uh, Democrats could could use uh could use the 
sexual charges against Roy Moore to leverage themselves into win, you know, into taking over the Senate in 2018. And the idea was that uh, Franken's, you know, behavior uh, interfered with that. And then uh, Kristen Gillibrand and uh, others came after Franken, but he, he didn't do anything. That was all an internal democratic panic over a political case that they wanted to make that was then totally vitiated because Roy Moore did not, in fact, win the Senate seat. Roy Moore was denied the Senate seat after the um, credible allegations that he had chased, that he was an aphibophile chasing underage girls around a mall when he was 32 and they were 16. The, the remarkable thing, if I can just say, and people have been pointing this this out, that uh, uh, particularly for the new the lieutenant governor who's about to become the new governor of New York, she got her original job because someone else had a sex scandal. Like the number of sex scandals in both, particularly New York politics, that is, uh, if you start going down the pipeline, are, are kind of interesting. And our, our friend Steve Kornacki pointed out that people, lieutenant governors who take over as governor after a scandal often do fairly well when they're up for election themselves for that role. So it'll be, she doesn't have a lot of time, but we'll, well that was, that well, was not the case with David Patterson who took over when Elliot Spitzer, right. the uh, governor of New York resigned in 2008 after having been caught out right. uh, paying a, you know, paying a madam. Uh, and Patterson himself was sort of nabbed in a, in a weird thing where he was having sex with a woman in a hotel in my neighborhood that he liked to use because he could get on the subway and then get off the subway at 93rd street and just walk up the block into the hotel, have sex and then get back on the subway and go back to his office without ever having to leave the block, which I think was a very, you know, an interesting example of uh, like how much detail you can find out about somebody's shameful personal conduct. Not, not that I don't want to talk about that more, but okay, yes. I have another thought um, uh, about the, this, this question about uh, whether there is something sort of inherently about the Democrats now that, that they would be more willing to do this. And I think if there's something interesting here, uh, I would assert that had Donald Trump won reelection, Cuomo would, would, would not have resigned today. Um, because there would I not agree. have there would not have been this figurehead who uh, everyone had, would have turned to uh, a top Democrat um, to have made the, made the pronouncement, and the Democrats would already have been be pulling their hair out about their relative weakness uh, in, on the national stage uh, in a different way. So, I, and I think we would be no, they wouldn't be able to crow about being more pure. I mean, he would be the presumptive front runner for the twenty four nomination. Well, he would be and that. that I, I, I'm not possibly. sure that's. I'm not sure that's true because because uh, the nursing home stuff was already was already very prevalent. Remember, Tis James, the, the nursing attorney, home stuff, by the way, eliminates every Democrat who's got an executive office in a state level position, from uh, Gretchen Whitmer to Gavin Newsom. They all followed the same playbook. Okay, but all I'm saying is so. The ground, I, I mean, I hate to put it this way because it sounds grotesque, but Tish James, the attorney general of the state of New York, who issued the report that was the proximate cause of this resignation last week, I can't remember, last week, 10 days ago, I can't remember when it was, uh, she issued a report earlier in January of this year, which was the report on the nursing home deaths. Uh, the nursing home deaths report was not in and of itself enough 
to knock Cuomo off the pedestal. But I, I don't know that he couldn't have survived this second without the first. In other words, that um, that he was uh, he was under attack on two fronts, and then a third, which was the book deal, which was an outgrowth of the of the nursing home death scandal. In other words, if there hadn't been the nursing home scandal, the notion that he had improperly used state help to produce the book would have had very little bite because people would have said, who cares? He's so great. He's so wonderful. Look, New York strong with the mountain and the poster and da, da, da. And, and so, yeah, I mean, that happens. Everybody does it. Who are you going to, what are you complaining about? But, but when that came out after the nursing home scandal details, that was one of the things that softened the ground. So first the polling came out and said, no, nah, no, nah, it's fine. He can stay there. He can stay there. And then the first articles came out about the sexual, uh, you know, the charges of sexual harassment. Uh, and he asked for this investigation. The thing is that he kicked the can down the road by asking for this investigation. The polling in New York supported that because people weren't ready yet to say that he should resign. So he... I think was hoping somehow against hope that either Tish James would relent or somehow that he could weasel his way through it or let's see what happened. And then basically the boom was lowered when she released the report. I mean, which means it would have happened no matter when it would have happened. Uh, You know, the thing about like special prosecutors is People always, presidents and stuff like that, always wanted them uh, because it could take four years for one of those investigations to wrap up. And so one of the ways you quieted a controversy was saying, okay, appoint an independent prosecutor, appoint a special counsel to look into Whitewater or look into this or look into that because it effectively kicked the can down the road. The Mueller stuff was very unusual in that um, Mueller was covered like you know, as though Mueller were an ongoing news story and nothing was coming out of the Mueller investigation. But people were focused on it. That's in part because of the nature of social media and how, you know, the 24-hour news cycle became the sort of 24-second news cycle. It was just on and on and on and on. But when Clinton wanted the Whitewater uh, prosecutor appointed, he wanted it to to quiet the story down. He didn't do it because he thought, you know, four years later, you know, his diddling, his his screwing around with Monica Lewinsky would end up uh, getting into the ambit of the special prosecutor. He thought this was a way to let him proceed and, like, there would be a report and it would be whatever it would be and then everything would be fine. Does does the two-week delay mean anything? The fact that Cuomo says, I'm resigning, effective two weeks from now? Because that, that struck me as unusual for these sorts of scandal-driven resignations. It's usually the announcement exit stage right and then that's that is he why i don't think he weeks? has anywhere to go he doesn't well, have anywhere doesn't to matter. go he doesn't have a house he doesn't have a he doesn't have a home i'm sure his brother can put him up <laughs> i know the man but, does not have a home he was living with sandra lee the chef they broke up he moved into the governor's mansion because he doesn't have a house the man does not own a piece of property i don't i, I i'm just saying like logistically He's got to like move his furniture. I I don't know. What do I know? 
I don't have any was, idea was, whether he's got asking, some Machiavellian scheme. Yeah, Maybe he's I had got more some nefarious plan. thoughts Ooh, in mind. Like, like he's okay. covering his tracks for the, you know, cleaning up his whatever. Right, he needs to shred. Him. He needs two weeks to shred all the documents, right? Right. I mean, well, I mean two weeks is a, is a sort of standard time to give notice. I mean, you know. Yeah, he's giving notice. He's resigning right. a job uh, and he's giving notice. Um uh, you know, he didn't know he did wrong. That was the the best part of the of the statement. You know, the line moved, but he didn't know that the line had moved. Um, so the line had moved, uh, and then his lawyer. By the way, the weird thing is, you know, he didn't tell anybody that he was going to do this really when he because his lawyer then an hour beforehand was trashing all of the accusers. There was a, the lawyer like eleven at eleven a.m. was like talking about how the accusers were politically motivated and they didn't know what they were talking about. They were lying, all of this, all of that, and then he comes out and resigns. <laughs> so you can see why you don't want to be his aide when things start going going wrong. Like he he then let his 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 lawyer like <laughs> hung her out to dry. I th- I think it's far more egregious that he drew his daughters into this. He was like, now I can see the world through their eyes. It wasn't that he said, oh, the line has changed, and so I just didn't understand. It was the sort of craven, uh, craven political move of I'm going to draw my family into this and use them as a human shield for my own misbehavior and the kind of apology to the daughters. That that did not strike me as at all persuasive. I don't know. Politicians use their families as props all the time. I mean, you remember Bill Clinton, you know, sure. Bill, Bill, and, Bill and Hillary putting Chelsea there in the middle as they walked, prop, to, yes. walked <laughs> to the helicopter with their backs to the camera, you know, leave them alone. They have so much work to do together. <laughs> they have so much, you know, there's some healing. They need, they're in pain and they need to heal, you know, like, uh, you know that that stuff. I mean, that's that's part and parcel of the you know the horror of these of these moments when when people when people are sort of publicly exposed with this kind of misbehavior, um, and they have families. I mean, John Edwards. I mean, it's like those things where you go through life and you're like, how can anybody recover from the public exposure of having done that to his wife? Who you know like is dying of cancer, and then I don't I don't know. I but mean, that's why there there was the wonderful fictional television show, The Good Wife. The premise, the opening, the first, the very first episode was from the perspective of the wife of a governor resigning over a sex scandal, and then the rest of the the television show follows her arc, and it actually deals kind of in a, in a pretty interesting way with a lot of those questions like the impact on the family and how they recover or don't and and the role of you know someone who's a larger than life political figure dealing with that uh the aftermath as well so i don't know yeah well that was still the wall i mean that was based yeah. on the on the appearance of elliot spitzer standing there compelling his wife Silda wall to stand next to him as he resigns with the idea that he's going to, you know, heal his family. And then the minute that it was expedient for her to do so, she hightailed it out of there. Good for her. Yeah. And, and let him, you know, let him go on with his misbegotten life. So, um, you know, uh, that was that, that subjecting of the subjecting his wife to that humiliation was one of the signal moments when you sort of, when you start understanding the depths of the depravity of 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 the ambitious and what they're willing to do, um, you know, even 
Anthony Weiner in the documentary uh, about his life has this moment when he's going to um, go to his uh, office where he's about to be, you know, be discreet, you know, like where he's about to lose the primary uh, for mayor uh, and, and Huma, his wife is in the car and he's like, you know what? Don't get out. Don't come with me. Don't get out. Like there's a crowd of people. Don't get out. Don't get out. Stay here. Like don't don't do this to yourself. It was sort of like one weird moment of <laughs> human, you know, like yeah. the enormity of what he had done and how and and the humiliation that he had posed to her just sort of like came home to him in that one second. Maybe because there was a camera on him. I mean, it's hard to know. But um, politically, again, let's let's think about the last twenty five years of scandals. Um, there have been a lot of sex scandals. There have always been a lot of sex scandals in American politics. The notion that, you know, this is anything new is, is foolish. Um, there was, of course, the bizarre moment when Newt Gingrich resigned and then uh, Robert Livingston became the, was about to become Speaker of the House. Then he had to confess that he had an affair and then he resigned and then became a billion-dollar lobbyist, basically, for oil interests. But he was supposed to be the Speaker of the House after Newt. Uh, resigned because they 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 screwed up in the ninety eight elections and almost lost the house. But John, yeah, as, as you had said on an earlier podcast, this isn't exactly a sex scandal. This this is a power scandal, power power fetish. scandal, and and that may yeah. isn't it something new? I don't know. I mean, that's an interesting question, right? Everybody says that sex crimes aren't crimes of sex; they're crimes of power. In any case, so it's just that. Um, uh, Cuomo Cuomo's a very sick man and he always has been and his the outlet of his of of his you know I'm not his therapist but um he has always focused on the people that he uh doesn't like or who are standing in his way and he turns them into these objects of loathing and he decides he is going to destroy them by whatever means necessary and the you know the 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 signature story about this is at the beginning of his career i've talked about it before about the inspector general at uh the department of housing and urban development when he was uh its secretary during the clinton administration and uh, there was an inspector general there susan gaffney um who uh uh, Cuomo announced very publicly that he wanted to, you know, reform the agency because it had notoriously shady practices of sort of directing money for political advantage. Uh, and um, so Gaffney, her office, the inspector general's office, did a study and said that that the policies couldn't change the way Cuomo wanted them to change. They had to go in a different way because of the way the legislation was written, whatever. And he uh, and he decided that she had stepped on his story, and that she was harming his reputation. And um, he tried. He hired outside counsel to investigate her on charges that she had treated people under her employ with uh, racial discriminat- racially discriminatory tactics. And then offered to drop the investigation if she'd quit and let him leave him alone so that he could go on with his reforms. 
That's what he did. That's what he did at the beginning of his political, or, you know, sort of like at the point in his political career at which he was trying to build the reputation so he could come back to New York and run for governor. I mean, you know, he was bad from the beginning. You know, this is this is a kind of weirdness that you associate with politics, but kind of from politics out of a novel or politics out of a melodrama, not actually out of real day-to-day hard scrabble politics. So one of the reasons that, you know, uh, uh, you know, it's knowing people like Andrew Cuomo and dealing with people like Andrew Cuomo that led Trump into that weird thing where he said, eh, we're, we all stink. We're all corrupt. We're, you know, what you think we're so great. You think no one, of course I invited Hillary Clinton to my wedding. That's what you do. I hate her, but I invited her. And everybody's corrupt. And if I tried to play games, I tried to play games. It's because he was drenched in the same atmosphere as Andrew Cuomo, New York State, real estate politics, you know, very, very hard scrabble, very bare knuckle, very corrupt, a lot of bribery, a lot of payoffs, a lot of mob involvement, all of that. And that, well, that's is, the same world. Yeah. Uh, you know, and this is also, it's worth mentioning in, in the other sort of sphere this this connects to this is the another sort of complete toppling of an anti-trump you know i mean there's like uh there's there's enough to make a a, like a netflix series now or something let's think about that so we've got avenatti right yeah down for the count he's off in uh he's uh i know he's probably going to serve you know much of the rest of his life in in prison uh, he's already been convicted on one set of charges. He's in he's in court on another set of charges. Who who else do we have besides him? As in governing models, it was oh that, that's a different the, oh, the, that's, that's Lincoln... a different category. What you're talking about are really the the agitators on cable yeah. news. Well, all, I mean, yeah, no. As far as as far as alternatives as a governing model, as an alternative theory of social organization against Trumpism, Cuomo was the most prominent and the first. Gretchen Whitmer. Gavin Newsom, people like Anthony Fauci is now living on borrowed time. You know, half a dozen other uh, people. Well, like, we have well, like we have, the cable news figures who yeah. come and go. Well, we have Newsom. Obviously, is the next up in the docket. I mean, you know, yeah. there there is this recall election, which is an entirely different dynamic, and you can't compare Andrew Cuomo's egregious personal behavior and his and 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 some of the things that he did. With Newsom, but the, the, but that is a, a according to the co- California Constitution, there is this recall referendum against him, and the polling is bad for him. And he, it's not that he was quite the anti-Trump; he was just a Democratic governor who wasn't Trump. He was Trump. not only just an anti-Trump; he was anti-union. I mean, he was a secessionist. Briefly, he started calling uh, California a nation state that was distinct and uh, distinct from the union and an alternative to the governing uh, model presented by Washington, dominated by Republicans. Uh, so yeah, not only was he, uh, he presented himself as an anti-Trump, he presented himself as a completely different idea of what the United States should constitute itself as. And that idea was um, not just the Cuomo model as ha- of handling the pandemic, uh, along with uh, all its associated um, mis- uh, maladministration, but also, you know, the racial stuff, you know, that racism is a public health crisis and the hypocrisies associated with that, the rising crime rates um, that are uh, attributable to permissive governance from the, from the, from the left. 
Um, so yeah, I think it's a it's a perfectly valid uh, case to be made as, okay. for Newsom as an anti-Trump. We're we're a little more East Coast oriented, I think. So perhaps we're not. He's not as much on our radar. Um, but I, I think he belongs there very much. Well, we're we'll see. We're gonna see. We're gonna see what September something <laughs> brings with that with that recall. Um, and uh, you know, one of the strangenesses here uh, is that Cuomo is leaving office at a time when, in fact, uh, you can see why it's a terrible time for people to be leaving office. We are in the middle of this incredible confusion over how his state, every state, everybody is going to handle uh, the the virus and the virus surge. Um, and... and uh, uh, He's leaving in two weeks. He could he could impose a mask mandate. He could not impose a mask mandate. He could impose new restrictions. He could not impose new restrictions. Um, and then the whole thing will start again and start anew with his successor, Kathy Hochul. And school is supposed to start here in three weeks. You know, and they still don't know how it's going to be, what the rules are going to be in the schools. And we don't know whether... Uh, Kathy Hochul will use her honeymoon power to, uh, which she'll have. She'll have a honeymoon period in which she will not allow herself to give in to the teachers' unions and do the right thing, or, or looking ahead to next year and running for office, she will, and she'll cater to them and, and cave to them depending on what it is that they want. Can I also just say it, it's it's kind of a delicious, uh, ironic whiplash to go back and reread some of the mainstream media coverage of Cuomo when he was at the height of his, you know, king of the pandemic uh, moment. Um, and also to, to realize that when, you know, when Trump was president and a Democratic governor like Cuomo was doing what the, the mainstream and the elite tech, public health technocrats wanted him to do, the problem with the virus was how the president was handling it. And now we have a total reversal, right? Now the problem with the virus is how governors like DeSantis are handling it. And and it's not the president. The president's trying to do the right thing. And it's just the, the news cycles are so rapid now that that feels like 10 years ago, but it was less than a year ago. So it's, it's interesting to see how quickly the same media outlets that were praising Cuomo are now talking about how ruthless he's always been. You know, it's like suddenly the floodgates have opened, as you said uh, this morning, John. But it is it, we should not forget how quickly uh, these the narratives turn on a dime. Well, I mean, Abe was always pointing this out during the pandemic that the Cuomo rules that were in place in New York State were so arbitrary. I mean, they were incredibly arbitrary. It was like 50% indoor. Abe, go ahead. Well, for example, we are back up now in New York at the percentage of positive, of daily positive tests that would, I mean, look, I don't want to give anyone any ideas, but that, that, that would, that would sort of qualify under under the old Cuomo lockdown rules for for yes for for no for no more indoor dining right and other and and no more and certainly no more uh, closing movie theaters and right. and and and, and uh, sports events and all of that um right. and so yeah there's no hunger or stomach for that uh in part because the arbitrariness started to be pretty evident even though it wasn't really focused on right i mean that's part and parcel of the part and parcel of what's happened uh, in 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 regards to these matters. It's now all just come down to masking, right? It's like we're not talking about anything worse than masking. 
I mean, Noah wrote a very good post yesterday about how there is this gathering, you know, gathering uh, tumbleweed of school closure ideas and and remote hybrid distance learning and stuff like that. That is that is you know on a road that no one is really watching is like collecting its discarded <laughs> you know refuse into a ball that is going to start you know threatening you know is going to turn into Godzilla and threaten and threaten the city. Um, but uh, I wish it were funny. It's already happening. Yeah. Yeah. That means I'm going to be across the country are already reversing their trend, their decision yeah. to, uh, to uh, re- prevent the imposition of hybrid learning and, and school closures. Um, it's just, it, it's, it's happening. And the public health apparatus has already demonstrated that it can lobby the CDC out of whatever it already thinks is the proper course of action. Uh, so I would not put it past. In fact, I would actually, I would actually expect at least major metros, dark, dark blue major metros, to return to this model. I, I disagree, but again, uh, that I disagree is meaningless because New York it's either going to happen or not happen. New York might be the exception because New York City was resistant to this from the beginning and has demonstrated enough independence from its teachers' unions uh, to to buck that trend. Um, but I wouldn't put the same faith in other municipalities. I don't, Chicago, but you know, LA, DC, they'll, yeah. But they didn't like, they didn't, I mean, let's just be, not to get too deep in the weeds on this, but it's not as though teachers liked hybrid teaching uh, or, you know, distance learning or any of that. Everybody thought it was a horror show, just they didn't mind staying home. Right now, we're not talking about distance learning and hybrid learning to allow teachers to stay home, by the way. That's part of the interesting thing here is it's more like the teachers have to be in school. The kids should stay home. No, it's just inertia, John. Yeah. It's just bureaucratic inertia. Right. Maybe an example, and Christine is more would be more familiar with this if she was back home, um, but in Washington, D.C., the um, Robbie Soloff had a piece on this about how gyms, gyms had gathered together and presented the... Uh, presented the city with an alternative to imposing mask mandates on gyms so they would check vaccine status. They would check your vaccination status at the door. And that was rejected, not because it was a, not a superior plan, but because it's just too hard. We already have the model here. Let's just impose the model from 2020. That's all it would be, just yeah. bureaucratic inertia and thudding uh, unimaginativity. And I actually care deeply about this at a personal level because there was a very special day when we all, the vaccinated people got to take their masks off at the dojo and train without them again. And now we have to put them all back on. Um, and again, nothing has changed about our risk or our risk to others. We're all vaccinated. Uh, it's it's simply that the state has now, the city has now declared this to be a risk that we now can't take anymore on ourselves. Right. right. I want to. I want to uh, end. Uh, we did this emergency about about Cuomo, but I want to talk about an op-ed, a really remarkable op-ed in the New York Times that is an effort to make the case that masking is unambiguously necessary to prevent the spread of infections in schools. Uh, produced by Kinesia Zimmerman and Danny Benjamin Jr. of the Duke University School of Medicine and the Duke Health System. Uh, uh, respectively. Uh, We studied over 1 million students. This is what we learned about masking, they say. So they have this argument to make. The argument that they make is that in North Carolina, uh, uh, but from March to June 2021, 
uh, certain school districts were required to submit infection data uh, to the ABC Science Collective, uh, which is something that they helped develop. During that time, more than 7,000 children and adults acquired the coronavirus and attended school while infectious. Because of close contact with those cases, more than 40,000 people required quarantine. Through contact tracing and testing, however, we found only 363 additional children and adults acquired the coronavirus. We believe this low rate of transmission occurred because of the mask-on-mask school environment. Both the infected person and the close contact wore masks. School provided this protection without expensive screening tests for the coronavirus or massive overhauls in ventilation systems. Uh, So they're claiming that um, there were 7,000 people infected, but there were only 363 additional children and adults who acquired the virus. We don't know how many of them are children. We don't know how many of them are adults, which would seem to be a very important thing. And we can only go on their say-so that everybody was properly masking the whole time and that each counterparty was masked. And they don't have a control in this study because, as they say, because North Carolina had a mask mandate, we could not compare masked schools to unmasked schools. To understand the preventive impact masks can have, we looked outside North Carolina for comparisons. Data from our research and from studies conducted in Utah, Missouri, and Wisconsin shows that school transmission rates of coronavirus were low when school enforced mask mandates. By contrast, one school in Israel without a mask mandate or proper social distancing protocols reported an outbreak of COVID-19 involving 153 students and 25 staff members. So they are comparing Five states in the United States with a single school in Israel where there was a virus outbreak. And this is to be taken as proof that masking will help and that masking is unambiguously proper. And then they say this, schools that do not require masks will have more coronavirus transmission. And while mortality from COVID was only two per 100,000 school-aged children as of April, With more than 50 million public school children in the United States, that could still mean many avoidable deaths of children in a year. Okay, let's talk about this number, shall we? Two per 100,000, that's 20 per million. Okay, that's 1,000 per 50 million. Now, avoidable deaths, are those deaths avoidable? I suppose so. If that transmission number follows... If we take, if we, if we accept the notion that however many number of people uh, in the 12 to 18 range are already vaccinated, um, this is where we start getting into the so a thousand deaths are are, are, are avoidable according at the, at the worst, and you're talking about essentially a national mask mandate on 50 million people to potentially prevent the death of a 1,000 people that you actually don't know are going to die. You don't know that it's a 1,000. What you, what you do seem to know is that it's not going to be more than a 1,000, and it may be a lot less because, you know, 40% of the population between the ages of 12 and 18 are vaccinated. And for this, with this garbage data in the New York Times, they are saying masks are unambiguously necessary. By their own report... Masking has not been proved to do anything whatsoever. That's what's astonishing. 
They write an op-ed that says masking has now been proved unambiguously to be something good and it has to happen. And that is not supported by their own data in their own article. And with a study that doesn't have a counter study, where the counterexample is one school in a country 9,000 miles away from where they're doing their study. This is what we're dealing with here. The uh, When it comes to COVID public, like COVID science and public health policy, the rule seems to be if you have one data point, you go with it, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's the story of uh, Provincetown as well, right? It's, but that's also why why Cuomo hung on as long as he did. He he was able to do that in those press conferences yes. day after day, like seize on something, and even though it was counterfactual uh, evidence, he would just talk it. And his his remember all the praise for oh he's so commanding oh the love gov oh we just we just can't believe Chelsea Handler was gushing over him on Twitter. I mean. He became a celebrity because he he was kind of a strong man about COVID, right? And people needed and wanted that at a certain point in time. And I think now what you're seeing are when public health bureaucrats try to do the same thing, it's not quite as effective, but doesn't stop them trying. Right. I have one more COVID point to make, and then we can stop because this is, as you know, our second uh, our second podcast of the day, and. Uh, but um, Eric Erickson found this, and uh, I think it's very helpful. This is the Houston healthcare system. Total number of COVID patients at Houston Medical Center and Perry Hospital as of August 9th, 2021. Remember, Houston is the place where a uh, doctor, I can't remember her name, uh, you know, was the focus of this story about how they're being overwhelmed. Children are, are uh, you know, the the... ICUs are being overwhelmed by vaccinated children who are, you know, <laughs> whatever, you know, children and the vaccinated and they're, they're, and, you know, it's unbelievable and they can't, no one's vaccinated. It's so awful. Okay. Here, here are the numbers at these two hospitals in Houston. 81 hospitalized from COVID on August 9, 2021. 72 unvaccinated, nine vaccinated. Okay, so that's one-ninth have breakthrough infections. 23 are in the ICU. 23 are unvaccinated. 11 are on ventilators. 11 are unvaccinated. So we have uh, one-ninth of the patients in this hospital, these two hospitals, uh, have breakthrough infections uh, as vaccinated people. None of them is in the ICU, and none of them is on a ventilator. This is exactly how the how the vaccine is supposed to work. This is an epidemic among the vaccinated, and seventy one percent of Americans now have at least one shot. And we are going backward into lockdown. We're walking backward into lockdown when the data do not support lockdown. If there were one case anomalous case that would that would demonstrate something different there'd be new guidance there there there'd be we'd, we'd be even further down the road back toward uh toward lockdown all okay. the all the all the data that to the, to the contrary all the data that 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 support our position are are meaningless when there's there is a case that right. you can make a single case that you can make that we don't that something's going on here that's bad 
that 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 dictates everything. Abe just made a very big arm gesture. Oh. To explain, to express the size. I would call it sweeping and a bold. Sweeping and bold <laughs> arm gesture. Kind of like New York, bold and strong and loving. And here's the here's the Andrew Cuomo mountain. Well, he just got buried under his own mountain. And by the way, there's a lot of problems with Cuomo going. He was a bulwark against the worst excesses of the far left in the state. I mean, he gave in to on a lot of things. But, you know, on charter schools, he was a bulwark. And other things, he sort of, he let them have some things, but didn't push others. He he held back against large tax increases. There are a lot of things that he did. And his departure will might have very parlous ideological consequences in the state in terms of uh, a, a lot of these economic policies, particularly if the governorship is captured by a squad type and all of that. And I, there's no reason to believe that Kathy Hochul has this in the bag. We don't know much about her or her, her, her politics, really. But um, the last lieutenant governor uh, who became governor, David Patterson, didn't barely even ran uh, in 2010 uh, when Cuomo ran. Um, if a If a celebrity Democrat decides he wants to run for governor, I don't really know who that is. But somebody like Cuomo, who seems to have um, a strong support, strong standing in the state, you know, she probably doesn't have a chance. So we don't know who that is. It could be AOC. I don't think it will because she doesn't probably want to be a governor. Um, but, you know, it's an interesting moment. And so, you know, the tragedy here is that is that he did some good things. Uh, he's a monster. He's a psychopath. And even they can do some, somewhat good things and maybe be bulwarks against the worst ideological excesses of the others. But it is a good thing that he is gone. It is a good thing that he's out. People like this should not be in politics, should not be in government. Uh, they stain us and they, 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 they pollute us and they pollute our system and they, and they breed cynicism and contempt. And that's not a good thing. So that's our emergency podcast. No ads, no fun. Enjoy it. We're, we'll be back tomorrow with, uh, with the regular stuff. I hope this gets into our Apple podcast feed and everything is back to normal. I think it is, but, uh, We'll, we'll have to see. Anyway, for Abe, Noah, and Christine, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.